This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today I have a guest on that I've been looking forward to speaking to for a while after I read her large and extremely helpful book. Liz Mulliner is a therapist with the Heal for Life Foundation. It's created for survivors by survivors. And we're going to talk about her book called Heal for Life. I am so glad that you can join me today, Liz. It's a pleasure. I, as I was saying just before we were beginning recording, there is so much in your book, and it's hard to even know where to start. But you you bring a, along a bunch of different things, including how the brain works and how we can heal from all sorts of things we really didn't think we could heal from. What got you to write this book right now? And, and it offers a lot of really practical help for people. Um, I wrote it because I, I want... I was talking at a big trauma congress in London and I thought I really need to put down everything I've learned in 20 years of helping over eight and a half thousand survivors because if I drop down dead it'll all be lost so I just thought I'll put down everything I know which made it rather a long book but it's everything I've learned over 20 years of my own healing and helping others to heal so it's it's it really is so that yes everything I've learned is in that book Mm. so as to help other people. So a lot of the things that I was reading in the book have a lot to do with childhood trauma and the need to feel safe before healing can begin. Um, There there were a lot of things in the book that deeply touched me and I put into practice right away, including how how to de-trigger, which I made a little, um, it'll be linked in this episode in the show notes, but there was a little episode I did related specifically to your book about those things that trigger us and hijack us actually into whatever trauma that we haven't healed from. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about how that works and how the brain um, kind of captures that in a, in a sort of a outside of space and time in a way? I think the biggest problem if we've suffered from childhood trauma is that whenever we are reminded through our senses, by an event, through our emotions, about something that was connected, and I'll go back in a moment to explain what trauma is, uh, that connects us to a trauma, uh, then we our whole brain clicks us into survival mode and we are on high alert. Uh, three important parts of our brain are cut off and we don't function properly. Put it very succinctly, we don't function properly. And then we kind of blame ourselves and think, oh, why did I do that? Oh, I'm so stupid. What was that about? Uh, Not realizing it is just our brain protecting us from the fear that we experienced in the first trauma. So it might be helpful if I, if I, first of all, if I qualify what trauma is, would that be an idea? That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So trauma is more emotion than the person can deal with and appears to be life-threatening. So this means the brain is not able to adapt. And a part of the brain they now feel, which is called the vagus system, comes in and not just your stress hormones are released, but there's an overarching other system that comes in and sends us into a freeze mode. And in that freeze mode, that moment of more emotion than we can deal with, uh, and is we think we're going to die, and a baby at six months will think they're going to die for very different reasons to a 10-year-old or a 20-year-old. 
So we always have to take that into account when we say, well, that wasn't really very traumatic. Mm. Something very minor can be very traumatic uh, to a six-month-old. So, um, so that is what trauma is. You had in your book, too, the difference between trauma and abuse. You mentioned that trauma is, is a deeply disturbing experience, and sometimes that's an abuse of power, betrayal of trust, helplessness, pain, confusion, or loss. But abuse is done to us, um, something done to us. And uh, we might not remember the trauma, but sometimes we're dysregulated, and it can come out in physical symptoms or emotional symptoms. We can't remember trauma because when we go into this freeze mode through the vagus system, three critical parts of our brain are cut off. Broca's area, which is the ability to speak, that's speechless terror. The hippocampus in the left side of the brain, which is our memory, or which is our long-term sense of self, which is how we remember consciously. And our prefrontal cortex, which makes us um, aware of what we're doing and how we're behaving, gives us an ability to control ourselves. Hmm. So because the hippocampus is cut off, we do not ever remember moments of actual trauma. So people say, I, I remember um, the, the car lights coming towards me, then I don't remember anything till I woke up in hospital. Or I remember, you know, somebody came into my room, but then I don't remember anything else. We don't remember once... We are emotions are overwhelmed, and once we think it's life threatening, and mm. it's those moments that are reactive each time we get triggered by a reminder of the event. So, if someone it was a car accident and somebody saw car car lights coming towards them, um, and then after that uh, they saw a rabbit on the side of the road, say mm. just before they whenever then in the future they saw a rabbit, they would be triggered into the same trauma reaction. So their hippocampus will be cut off, their sense of knowing what they're doing will be cut off, and their body will go into fight, flight, or freeze. So their body will go into anger or running away. So we have this enormous reaction, and we go, what was that about? And we don't realize that we saw a rabbit when, when we experienced trauma. And so abuse, I, I, I think the word abuse is very appropriate at times, but I find... For healing, in the end, we have to lose the blaming and take responsibility for our healing. And while we're kind of victims of abuse, it's kind of I'm still a I am still a victim. I'm somebody did this to me, and they should pay. Kind of attitude, and and for me, that doesn't help at all. It, it's blaming is not really part of the healing process. You do mention about how important the part of empowerment is, and you talk about the uh -huh. inner child, too. That's something that I think has been missing in a lot of things I've read regarding healing. People who've suffered sometimes uh, will stay in a kind of victim mentality, not not on purpose, of course, but yeah. it's it becomes about the thing that happened, yeah. and there isn't a yeah. victory that happens over it. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the empowering part or the inner child and, and what is going on there? Let me talk first about if we continually talk about and, and continually think about what happened to us, then the neurons in the brain get strengthened. So it more and more affects the way we think of ourselves and the way we act. So continually talking about our trauma or our abuse doesn't heal us. It actually makes us worse. And then the question you were really asking me was, oh, the inner child, well, you 
I mean, this comes from Peter Levine's book, Waking the Tiger. I read his book and I suddenly realized we were missing something from our program. And that is that when I am in the now remembering something awful that happened to me as a kid and I'm releasing the fear, if I just see it visually, if I then store that memory of that little kid in victim mode, then even in my conscious brain, I'm still a victim. However, if I allow that little girl to yell at the person who hurt her and say, that wasn't fair, you shouldn't have done that to me, I hate you, you're a horrid man, a horrid woman, and then the memory is stored as the little girl has had control over the person. People seem to lose the, yeah, the victim part of being a survivor. We, we become empowered. And that little child has overcome the fear in a very significant way. So uh, re-empowering the child's self when dealing with trauma, I, I agree with you, I think is, and I noticed once I'd started doing it about 15 years ago, an enormous change in the people I was working with. Yeah. And, and to speak to that, another thing in your work that, that is different than a lot of things I've read includes um, not handing over yourself to others to, to kind of be fixed or to be yeah, um, yeah. It, what you're doing is so different doing it uh, created by survivors for survivors and there's a lot of agency wrapped up in the healing process and not just sort of you know a passive a passive kind of healing um, maybe you can speak to how healing is affected by by our active role or choice one of the big impacts of trauma, and I'm so aware of this in me, is the powerless we feel, powerlessness, not only just at the time of the trauma, but if we had a dysfunctional childhood, the whole way that no one ever noticed, no one cared, it really makes, I think, each one of us feel very worthless as well as powerless. Now, that means we can sort of think, go to a doctor, a therapist and say, you fix me. I'm not good enough. I can't do it for myself. But for me as a survivor, it was really important to take responsibility for my healing, to say to my wonderful psychologist, no, that isn't quite right what you're doing. I need you to do this with me. And so I took control of my healing. She, in my early years, very much still walked alongside me. But I said what I needed to do. I, don't, I believe therapists, they say it, but they don't all of them do it, which is it's really listening to what their client wants, not thinking, what am I going to do to fix this client? So it's a whole different way of working, which is about me, the client, being the absolute center of, of the work. I, I, I am constantly amazed how survivors, if you really ask them, know exactly what they need to do in order to heal, exactly what they're lacking, exactly what their key problem is. And I find if I just say, you know, what's happening? What's, what's, what do you think is the core problem for yourself? They, they know. Uh, and they often say to me, no one's ever asked me that before. They're always getting me to tell them my history or telling me we're going to do this, this, uh, this therapeutic approach or that therapeutic approach. But I think it, the time has come for us to really listen to clients. And as a client, anyone listening, you've got the right, you're paying the money. You, you work out what you need from the person you're going to. And if they're not providing it, get another one. There's pieces, too, that talk about, um, I know Bas, uh, Basil Vanderkolk talks a lot about how talking isn't really, it's not the same as integrating. It's not the same of joining the both sides of the brain to actually no. heal. No. If you, you can't heal from your left brain, because trauma is held in the right brain, 
the talking part of the brain, Broca's area, is held in the left brain. So talking doesn't do any healing. May be helpful. It may help us make sense, make logic of what happened to us. But we healing is integrating the right unconscious emotional brain with the left logical conscious brain. So as a survivor, I start really feeling my emotions and thinking sensibly at the same time. That's that's integration that Bessel van der Kolk and, and Dan Siegel and everyone talks about. Integration of the brain is the most important thing for us as survivors, and that is all part of de-triggering, unlocking my trauma. All of that helps me start working all the time with my two parts of my brain that I was created with. You write in your book that you believe triggering is the single greatest problem for survivors. So um, how do people cope with something that, you know, especially on social media, people are constantly triggered. I don't know if there's even, it's almost like a trigger factory. (laughs) (laughs) And so what what do you suggest for people who are are having a lot of troubles with triggering in, in a day's time? welcome any trigger. Triggers are treasures. If, mm. if I am triggered, well, this is the huge opportunity for me to do healing because it will be, if I connect to it, reminding me of a trauma. Now, if I am triggered in the middle of the day, well, then I de-trigger, like you were mentioning, by looking at someone, looking in a mirror, and just acknowledging the feeling that triggering is reminding me of. So I say, I feel frightened. I feel scared. I feel frightened. I feel that person is telling me off. And And I used to be told off as a child, but that's okay. It's not really happening now. I'm okay. And then I, and then I carry on. But, um, if you, if you ignore triggers, they just get worse and worse and worse. But then of course, what's important is then to, with the therapist, uh, if people can do it on their own, but is then to explore and really let go of the fear that originally created the trigger. So when was it I was told off? When was I put down? When, when was it in my childhood? Um, and in my book, I explain how you can go back um, through creative means to find out the exact moment that created the trauma. So there was one moment when I was told off and put down when I felt it was life-threatening and more emotion than I could deal with. So maybe I might remember when I was six years old, a teacher saying, oh, you're the dirty kid in the class, you know. So then I released how terrifying, how humiliating it was, how awful in front of the class to be called dirty. And then when I've done that, then I re-empower the little girl. And then I will not get triggered each time I am, um, you know, told off. So so every time we are triggered, they are treasures to help us to heal. And, and that's why identifying what triggers us is kind of the first step and, and quite difficult to do for some survivors. One of the things you talk about in your book was extremely eye-opening to me. Um, when you talk about things like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and things like that, um, what are some of those things that people might not realize is, is trauma that's been buried that is kind of coming out as other things? Well, I I don't... I, I don't claim to say that all fibromyalgia and all chronic fa- fatigue syndrome is caused by childhood trauma. I am the people know the people who I have worked with here and had fibromyalgia, for instance, which is very common, and no longer have it. Now they started healing. And the moment they, we've got someone with us working in our team this week, and and she came back having not been here for seventeen years because for two years she'd been suffering from chronic fibromyalgia, and she said. 
do you think, Liz, I need to do some more healing? And I said, well, I think that's pretty obvious. So she did a week of healing and now she's completely healed. So, um, and chronic fatigue syndrome, I believe, and this is just my belief, that in many cases it's triggering which is not acknowledged. And I've been working with quite a few people with um, chronic fatigue syndrome. It certainly is always lessened, and I'm at the moment working extensively with a um, a psychologist who suffers from it because I, I want to kind of show absolutely that even the most chronic chronic fatigue syndrome can be healed by healing from your trauma. Um, there's definitely a connection because our body carries the score. Our body is part of our brain, is part of our emotions. And when I first started recovering my memories, I started trying not to acknowledge my sexual abuse, I ended up in hospital for, for seven weeks. My whole body shut down. I had chronic fatigue syndrome. It, 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 and the moment I started healing, it, it went completely. So um, I am a great believer in if you've got a, a chronic condition, and you know you suffered from childhood trauma, deal with the trauma, and my experience has shown over 20 years that the physical conditions change as well. And that's a much better way to live. It's much better to deal with the fear from childhood than living in a chronic constant pain. Things like inflammation and pain that doesn't right. have a source uh, that can be yeah. medically understood. Yeah. Um, I don't think doctors, I've never come across a doctor that would even ask me anything like that. Like, do you have, do you have trauma? You know, I've had migraines, severe migraines, and I think it is uh, trauma related. And I never heard anything like that. It's, it's incredible how um, that connection is, goes completely unnoticed. Um, and migraines is another, cl- I cannot tell you how many people with migraines, people will say, working here, what guests here, and said, I've got a migraine, I'll have to, I'll have to go off, Liz, I say, okay, just tell me how you're feeling, they say I feel frightened, and they go, oh my God, my headache's gone, so if you ever get it again, it's because you're triggered, so de-trigger yourself, and then try to look at what happened immediately before your migraine, but it, it, the good news is, certainly in Australia, a lot of the um, uh, pain specialists are talking about what what what's the emotional reason it is being recognized i think much more that that they do say what is the emotional you know they do look to the emotional but not nearly enough and it's and i i keep urging doctors uh, talk to the uh, doctors conference and i said please just put it on the form people don't have to answer it are you a survivor of childhood trauma if they don't want to answer it they don't have to but at least it makes the possible connection so people can start realizing uh, if we're severely frightened as a kid, it, it can have big physical impacts on us as an adult. It's, mm. it's helping us make those connections, I think, would help doctors so much. So I think it's fear. They don't want to offend. Doctors say to me, oh, I don't want to offend my patients. And I said, <laughs> well, as a survivor, I can answer no if I don't want to. I mean, it's, you know, wh- why will it offend me? It validates me. It's, I think it's the shame that people universally and the the guilt the world universally feels about uh, child abuse yeah it's it might be covering up their own their own fears yes absolutely when i was reading your book um something came to mind and i don't know if it's just it's probably just a 
conflation of many different things I'm I'm reading at all at once, and I don't assume that I have the original thought here, not one bit. But as we were talking um, on forms in the United States, anyway, it has you check off uh, things like race, and it really is based on what you look like, not really actually what your heritage is from or your DNA or something. <laughs> it's really what you look like. But African Americans and uh, Latino Latinas have higher blood pressure and die sooner and and have um, you know these certain health risks and I thought to myself as if it's genetic it's trauma <laughs> hello yeah, it's trauma. these people are undergo a lot more abuse oppression how of course there these groups are going to have more health problems and die sooner why is this a surprise I mean, all non-dominant cultures suffer. Any, those of us who are white cannot know what it is like to be a non-dominant culture. In Australia, we have our First Nations people, the original Aboriginal people. The, the abuse, the trauma they suffer from, the ongoing trauma from society, from society, the ongoing put down, made to feel lesser than, has a profound impact packed on them. And so people end up saying, oh, they're all drunks. Oh, they're all on drugs. Oh, they're all so hopeless. But they're all of those things because they're all suffering from trauma. Right. And it's, it's wonderful work to do because in our country, it is the most important group of people to help because they have been the most disempowered. They have been the most abused and by us whites. So it feels to me like it's really important that us white people help them to take their power back and then they can tell us to stuff off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because people will frame it in a way like this, this people group as if there's something wrong with that genetic makeup or something as if that's like legitimate when it's obvious that uh, of course a certain group's going to suffer generationally when certain things have been in their historic background it's we run healing weeks in the philippines and i'm fascinated by the philippines the philippines have suffered from four suffered from 400 years of colonization so still the trauma there is what color your skin is and the paler your skin. So if you're born into a high-ranking family, but you are very light-skinned, you suffer enormous you're, – you're, sorry, the other way around. <laughs> and, and, and they're light-skinned and you're dark-skinned. You suffer enormous trauma because you're considered less than just because of the color of your skin. From And, and, and in the shops in the Philippines, they don't sell brown-skinned dolls. They only sell white, you know, uh, white dolls with blonde hair. I haven't been there for about three years. So uh, so maybe it's changed. But but that, that's the sort of whole we are lesser than the white race that is embedded in the whole nation. And it was fascinating to work there and work with people's trauma and see how much of it was caused from the colonization. Mm, and that's just held in the body. It's, it's bodily trauma. Intergenerational intergenerational, I am lesser than, um, I, I'm, should be, that's why I, I should be in servitude. I should, a whole lot of stuff that means they're not really claiming their right in this world as a, as a nation, really. And it's, you know, it's really such exactly that it's all nonsense. And, and us white people should shut up and, and recognize, you know, we've done all the damage. The one thing you also talk about is, um, 
pathologizing and diagnosing uh, things that could be trauma, then you're sort of stuck with this label. You can't really get, especially in the United States, this is true. And you, I don't, I hope that it's better in Australia, but here you can't get help unless you get a diagnosis, then you can't get that taken back off. You know, so there's this pathologizing that happens and then people think, well, this is permanent. And I wonder if you could speak to that. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I was thinking actually in bed last night, I wish we just dropped the whole thing of mental illness. I wish we just say illness. If we suffer from trauma, we don't have a personality disorder. We have an illness of the brain. And like all other organs, we can heal. But this way they call it a personality disorder, border personality disorder. It's as if there's something wrong with us. There isn't. There's stuff with the way that our brain has coped with the trauma, uh, and that has impacted on us. And of course we can heal. And I couldn't agree with you more because so many of these labels, schizophrenia, I'm so glad now that many in the you know Schizophrenia Association are recognizing the connection between schizophrenia and childhood trauma mm. and recognize the massive also misdiagnosis of people who are coping with their trauma by hearing voices, but not necessarily have true schizophrenia, whatever true schizophrenia is. So this whole making it a permanent, we get um, in, in like 18-year-olds and they've been diagnosed and they're on permanent disability mm. and they've been told you will never work. So it's really wonderful to say, of course you'll work, you've just got to heal you know, and then you can go off and study and you'll be able to study and then you can do whatever you want to do. And it's really wonderful to help young people because you see them going from hopeless, oh, I'm, I'm just going to do nothing with my life. Oh, my goodness, I can be a psychologist. Mm. Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I bet that they make the best psychologists too. <laughs> yeah, they would understand. <laughs> they could have some real empathy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, when you see somebody make enormous progress um, and you think, you know, I guess I could do that too. You, you realize there's a lot of things that have been etched in what seems like stone uh, that really isn't true. It's, it's kind of like the, um, you know, the first person to, to run a hundred miles in a, in one of those races, like, oh, the body won't, won't make it. Or the first a woman can't run a marathon. She'll, you know, she won't be able to have children, you know, or something. Um, you know, then, the, then a person does it and it's like, oh, I guess it is possible. People have been held back in a big way with, with things of the mind because first you're shamed for it, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it, people are treated like, oh dear, he, they're seeing someone about their problems. Oh no. You know, um, and they've actually come up with a lot of creative ways to survive. Um, and I wanted to, speaking of surviving, you mentioned something that I've never uh, seen before. And I actually thought this was incredibly insightful. Maybe you could uh, pick it apart for me. It, page 129, you say, it's important to recognize that it's possible to feel suicidal and also know that you're not going to actually kill yourself. The feeling provides relief from the overwhelming feeling of hopelessness. Um, Absolutely. I did uh, research. uh, I used to run an organization called ASCA, now the Blue Knot Foundation. Uh, I started it when I first, many, many years ago. Uh, But I then did, I did research and 96% of the 800 survivors who answered felt suicidal at some time on their healing journey. And I'm not going to say this exactly accurately, but something like only 42% actually felt like taking their lives. And uh, whenever someone says, oh, I'm feeling suicidal, I say to them, do you mean you're feeling 
hopeless and, you know, it's not worth living? Or are you actually wanting to kill yourself? And they go, oh, oh no, I'm not going to kill myself. No, 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 no. I'm No, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just feeling suicidal. So I find validating the thoughts of feeling suicidal uh, and helping people clarify there's a huge difference between feeling like being dead and deciding to kill yourself. And it's the people who say, no, I want to kill myself. Those are the people we have to urgently help. And feeling suicidal, uh, um, you know, yes, I'm sure anyone who's listening will know what I'm talking about if they're a survivor of childhood trauma. Yeah, well, it's it's the powerlessness, I think. Powerlessness, that always gives a feeling of hopelessness. And not being listened to, you go to health professionals. Some of them are wonderful and some of them, out of their own fear, are hopeless. They'll do anything other than address our child abuse. Huh? It's so frustrating. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it's um, yeah, and if you feel you're you're not understood by a health professional or you're not really getting the care you need, you yeah. you might feel like giving up, which is also different than than feeling oh. I I definitely want to you know blow my brains out or something. It's and I think some people Absolutely. will have half heartedly or, or cu- they might cut or they might do um. Like, well, they say, you know, something to get attention, not not to say it's all serious. I'm not saying that it's not serious, but yeah, yeah. but it's it's a way to say I need help. And I've, I feel like I need others involved in, in something I can't do on my own. You talk a lot about how we can't heal in isolation. Maybe you can speak to that as well. I'll talk about self-harm, but I'll talk about healing and isolation. Our brain changes and develops and our brain has to change for us to heal through interaction. That's why therapeutic relationships are so helpful. I can't sit alone at home and change my brain. I can do it a little bit of work, you know, by looking into the mirror, but the most effective, I mean, this has been shown in research endlessly by an incredible number of people. It's the relationship, it's the interaction, how people react to us. That's what heals us. So when we, for safety's sake, go into isolation, we're really doing the worst possible thing. So I kind of urge anyone, again, who's listening, if you're one of those people, just try to give yourself the task of every day, even if you just walk into a shop and buy something, connect with other human beings, smile at someone, look at someone, because if you don't, your brain brain atrophies, as it were. It's stuck. You, 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 you're not going to change while you're in isolation. And that's really sad. Yeah, it's fascinating. We have a, a very connected world sometimes over the screen. And you would think, oh, I'm talking to people. But you can be very no. lost, really, um, yeah. in your own pain and, and actually not connecting. In Like mammals need to connect, I think. Yes, we need to connect up. The neurons change through connection with others. They know that. Uh, When we're first born, our whole brain develops through our interaction with our prime caregiver, usually our mother. But from the input we get from our mother, our whole emotional regulation takes place, our understanding of the world, our world beliefs, everything happens as those neurons learn from the mother. So, it, it, you know, we don't, we don't, if we, the, the most damaged children are the children who get no input from, um, a, you know, from a primary carer in the first year of life. Those are the people who have suffered the worst trauma. That's the worst trauma because there's no brain development. So I, I think about, as you say that, I think about the, the children 
who've just been left in a crib in in some part of Eastern, yeah, like um, like Eastern Europe, where you know there were a bunch of babies adopted from different places in the world, and they're just not enough staff, and they just stayed in their crib. They stopped crying, and and what do you think for for those? I mean, obviously, some of these children do really really poorly in life, um, and do you think uh, do you think the brain is plastic enough to to come back from that amount of brain damage. We had a neighbor who adopted a baby from Chile and it was a child. He was a child. He was um, or three years old. So they, he was so tiny because when your brain is releasing stress hormones, your growth is, is impeded. There is no growth, not only of the brain, but physically of the mm. body. So he looked like a much, you know, two years younger than he was. So he came and went to, you know, started going kindergarten. But as he healed, as he began to feel safer, as his brain was able to develop and learn and connect, he suddenly shot up. And it was really difficult because when he went to high school, supposedly at the age of 12, he was really a 14-year-old boy. And suddenly you could see he was a completely different age from the age he was being called. So, you know, like the football team, everyone said, look, he, he's, he's not a 12-year-old. He, you know, he's six foot tall. And he was really 14, but he only started his growth and his development once he was in a safe environment. So it's enormous damage that happens in these orphanages. And I, I feel for people who adopt babies and tiny children that they really need to learn about trauma and he- how to heal that tiny one from trauma because otherwise they blame themselves when the child has behavioral issues and the behavioral issues will be nothing to do with the enormous amount of love they might be getting in their new home love alone does not heal you from trauma you've got to be allowed to release the fear so i, I feel for-, for foster parents and adopting parents i do a lot of training of foster parents and foster care workers because it's a really important area and I I mean if you adopt a child with great love from a third world country and then you face enormous difficulties um, it's really hard if no one's saying you've just got to let them release the fear you've got to go back you know it's not your fault it's nothing to do with you nothing to do with the current environment and so um, I think there needs to be a lot of education about that a lot of education. For somebody listening to this who, who can't get a hold of you, what, what resources would you... So, um, firstly, buy my book, <laughs> which, which, which as the first thing, Heal for Life. And, in fact, anyone who's listening is welcome to contact me. I answer all my emails. My name is Liz Mulliner, and it's spelled M-U-L-L-I-N-A-R. You can Google me or whatever. You know, it's Liz Mulliner at healforlife.com.au. But, you know, Facebook, Heal for Life is everywhere. And we happily pass on any resources or anything to help people, um, help people to help themselves. I mean, that's what we're about. We're a charity. We're not a, we're not a profit making. We're about helping survivors to have the courage to heal. So wherever anyone is, that that's what we're about. So we're more than happy to share resources, make suggestions as much as we can. We, we don't have many connections in the United States, but at least we can listen, at least we can say, what about X or Y, or this is a good book for that or whatever. So very happy to do that. So Heal for Life is, you know, on Facebook, Instagram, um, my book. 
you can find us <laughs> with this with, with this amazing internet now. We can all find each other. So anyone can find Liz Mullineau and anyone can find Heal for Life if you want to. And it's just that we're survivors wanting to help other survivors. So if you want to heal, get in touch. If you if you don't want to heal, we're not very we're not very helpful. <laughs> and do you have things on YouTube that people can watch too? Workshops or anything like that? Yes, yes. There's Heal for Life on YouTube. I'm I'm going to. I'm always so busy. I'm going to try and do some workshops or whatever, but I haven't done that yet. Uh, at the moment, I'm finding it difficult to work out what's the most important way for me to spend my time. And just at the moment, I feel it's going around the world training therapists because then therapists will help their clients. But um, I, yeah, I'm kind of playing with how I can most effectively help how we all, how all of us survivors can most effectively help others. Because I've got a, a great team of brilliant people who, who, um, you know, healed through Heal for Life and are just as passionate as I am about um, in- helping and encouraging people to heal. Healing, every single person listening probably has something they could heal from. Anyone who's got a phobia, anyone who's got anything they don't, you know, they've got, it it all will relate to some childhood trauma. So it's, everybody can heal. Everybody, no, everybody can live in love and and happiness and joy and and not have problems with relationships or life. If life is being a problem, there's something unresolved in your childhood. So deal with it. (laughs) Yeah. And you mentioned, too, a lot of the the underlying thing is actually fear, whether it's anxiety or anger or something going on. Underneath all that is really feeling unsafe in your body and feeling fearful. It's very basic. Very basic. If we don't feel safe, we're releasing stress hormones because our brain is made for for preservation. Mm. So that is why... Uh, the fear center, what's called the amygdala, is the first part of the brain to form. It, even in the womb, the, uh, we're releasing stress hormones. If our mother is angry or fighting or yelling, we're learning even in the womb what sort of a mother we have. It's uh, our brains are, are are made for survival. Um, so if we and if anything that creates fear, fear is dangerous. It's life threatening. So our brain is tuned, our right brain is tuned to react to fear. So if we don't want to express our fear, we suffer from anxiety. Mm. So anyone who suffers from anxiety, like you were saying you did, it's because you've got unreleased fear still from your childhood. And it's just a matter of finding which were those key moments, those key moments of trauma in your childhood you haven't yet been able to access and, and releasing the fear and recognizing it and validating how dreadful that experience was so that you don't get anxiety attacks anymore and once you've done it then you don't have anxiety anymore it's <sighs> it's it's so simple and yet so hard to do <laughs> i'm not <laughs> underestimating how hard it is to do we all avoid our healing because our adult self is is we try to avoid fear because that's protecting ourselves in the same way so our brain in the same way that is keyed to fear we also, our brain does everything to avoid confronting our fear, mm. which is a bit of a catch-22, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you, you talk in the book about there's a, like a protective, a protective parent in there somewhere and there's a, there's a child that's, that's hurt. And mm. when you're triggered, the child part comes, it's sort of, and I, I know what you mean because I'll be like unreasonable and, and childlike when I'm 
afraid, upset, you know, anxious. And then there's the part of let's take care of this child and let's shut things down. And, you know, (laughs) let's, um, let's guard the feelings. And, um, it's an interesting, it's a little battle going on. And and then the best thing to do would be to let the child acknowledge the fear. Yeah. Yeah. Acknowledge it. And then the adult self, the adult self then comforts the child self. Right. So when we've released the fear, the adult part of ourselves also wants to grow and develop. And a very easy thing to do is if your right side of your body is the left side of your brain, that's the adult side. So if you just take your hand and just stroke your upper arm and just say, I love you, gosh, you're beautiful. It's a very easy way anyone can just nurture themselves wherever they are. If anyone finds it a really difficult thing to do, it can mean one of two things. One is that you really suffered from a lack of nurturing. So you really don't know the feeling of self-nurturing. And it certainly usually means that you, you, you don't easily love and nurture yourself. So, <laughs> when we are triggered, we don't remember how we behave. So I've, I've done work with very violent criminals and they don't remember their violent rapes, you see, because they're triggered. So, and we also, you know, people get really angry when they're, tr- when they're triggered, they're going to fight. So they really yell, say, at their partner. And then later the partner says, you really yelled at me. And the person says, no, I didn't. I didn't because we don't remember. As far as uh, anything that you wanted to make sure listeners know about your book or any uh, golden nuggets you'd like to pull out and and say before we go, like some final words, is there anything that you'd like to bring up? No, no, I think we've covered everything, you know, just buy the book because all the money from the book goes to help more survivors. It's not, it's not for me, it's to help survivors. And I I want people to buy the book just because I want as many people as possible to be helped to heal from trauma. That's all I care about is getting the message out to everyone. You can heal from childhood trauma if you want. In terms of other kinds of trauma that might have happened later than childhood, is it approached in the same sorts of ways? Yes, because if if you've got a gun pointed at your head when you're in a bank, uh, that is life-threatening and will have the same impact. And in the same way, you have to go back and release the fear. It's exactly the same. Uh, Sometimes people's adult trauma is, is worse because of what happened in childhood. So anyone who's experienced trauma in childhood, if they suffer, say they're in the floods or we've just recently had our fires, they're much more impacted by any life-threatening occasion because their brain is wired more strongly for survival. So it goes on. If you've suffered from one trauma, the next trauma has a bigger impact and so on and so on right the way through our lives. And that's why it's so important to heal as children, as adults, as teenagers, as early as possible, so as to stop that building that mountain of, of reactive trauma. Wow. Well, Liz, you're welcome to come back anytime if you want to <laughs> if you want to talk about a specific topic or if you have something new coming. I would love to have you back anytime. There's you're a treasure trove of information, <laughs> and it's all useful. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you.
if you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.